Hello, and welcome to this podcast by the Center for Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. My name is Philip Hirsch, and today I will be talking to Tony Barber, who is European Affairs columnist at the Financial Times. Tony, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Good to be here. In this episode of our podcast on Germany in the world at the eve of an important general election, our European and British perspectives on Angela Merkel's tenure as Chancellor and the September election in Germany. Tony, you have followed European affairs and German politics for really more than 30 years by now. In your view and in your experience, how has Germany changed under Angela Merkel? How, how also has the perception of Germany changed over the last 16 years when you compare it to 2005? I think the, the fact that uh, Angela Merkel worldwide and particularly in, in Europe retains a great deal of trust and respect from countries of different political persuasions after having been in power as long as 16 years testifies to her skills um, and management of crises and ability to keep a cool head and uh, avoid blunders so she'll she'll be remembered with a, with a great deal of warmth uh, and and respect as i say for for having steered the the german and european ship through some very, very difficult waters indeed, which uh, might not have been foreseeable uh, when she came to power in 2005. But I'm, I'm thinking of at least two, possibly three crises that might have represented a, an existential threat to the European Union, namely the sovereign debt and banking crises that broke out towards the end of her first term. Then the refugee and migrant crises in her third term and then most recently the pandemic. Was she then a, an unlikely leader? I mean, that calmness, she, she doesn't seem to be leading from, from the front, you know, as sort of, or she's more a leader from behind, as Obama once put it. Does that make her an unlikely leader of Europe, or is that not so surprising in view of these crises? I think she was conscious of, she's always been conscious of the fact that some other politicians and publics around Europe might not have wanted a German chancellor to openly present himself or herself as the leader of Europe. That isn't necessarily what people want to hear. And she, she was aware of that. And, and so although de facto her policies and her, the construction that she put on these crises tended to define the European line, she absolutely didn't talk you know, in public about you know, me the leader or we Germany the leader. So I'm thinking, you know, if you were to take the the sovereign debt uh, crises, uh, the framework of understanding that she and her government put on what the problem was, I mean, many would say they rather misdiagnosed it and came up with with solutions that prolonged the crisis. Nevertheless, it was the German construction of the crisis that mattered, and that came from her. So de facto, it was German leadership, but she did a very good job, I think, in not causing anxiety around the, the continent of a kind of insensitive bullying type of Germany. Although you did hear a bit of that in places like Greece and Poland and one or two others at times. But on the, on the whole, it was not uh, too widespread. There, there has sometimes also been 
criticism of a lack of radical reform, let's say, that, um, you know, she or her government or Germany are not supporting more profound structural reforms in the European Union. But then again, as you say, she's obviously there are other voices who are more skeptical on that too. Is that sort of more um, ambiguous uh, middle ground position that she took? Is that a natural corrective maybe that Germany almost has to show when it comes to Europe? I would make two points. One, you mentioned reform at the European level. I mean, often what it tends to be is, quite frankly, the lowest common denominator that's achievable among what now 27 governments. But there's a second and I think rather more more important point. That is the question of domestic economic and structural reform inside Germany. And there, you know, she has been pretty cautious, actually. And uh, she was rather lucky in coming to power in 2005, on the back of some very far-reaching reforms to the labour market and the welfare state, which had been passed by the Gerhard Schröder SPD Green government. And those reforms paid dividends in terms of business competitiveness and trade performance and overall economic strength. During Merkel's time in power, she didn't need to make those controversial reforms herself. She just accepted them. They'd been passed by the previous government. As time passed, one came to see a lack of real enthusiasm for taking these sorts of reforms further. And I rather fear that she may well be judged at some point in the in the future as someone who didn't take what would have been undoubtedly more difficult, perhaps unpopular measures, but measures that, you know, were needed and still are needed to avoid a certain uh, slippage in the new economy of uh, digitalization, artificial intelligence and so on. And her government hasn't really done enough on that front. One last point would be, we all know German governments are coalitions and she has tended to favor the consensus stance of grand coalitions, you know, more and more. So I think you know, this, this has been going on now since 2013. And the effect of that, uh, I think, has also, in the end, been to blunt reform at home. So without wanting to be too critical, because after all, you know, German business is still the most uh, powerful national business sector in Europe and one of the two or three around the world. But really, more could have been done. Um, just to pick up on the last point a bit, the question of coalition, as you say, four out of the three governments were a coalition with the Social Democratic Party, the centre-left party. It is sort of like as if Labour and the Tories had governed Britain for, let's say, 12 years, really. And there is this argument that, on the one hand, that has destroyed the Social Democrats. They have resuffered in the, in the setting, but also more generally, that it has opened up the fringes of German politics to more radical parties, the far right, IFD on the on the right and the links but on the left. Is this a fair assessment? And can you blame her for this? And, you know, at the end of the day, she also just needed to govern somehow. And those coalitions were the ones that worked. Um, is there a criticism in this that one can be labelled against her? I don't think you can put the blame exclusively on her. I mean, if you look at the coalition negotiations after the 2017 election, I mean, the, the party that torpedoed them was actually the Liberal Free Democrats. It wasn't the CDU. So, uh, no, you can't blame her entirely. As for the point about do broad church grand coalitions, one after another, incentivize a certain type of extremism? Well, you mentioned Die Linke. I mean, it doesn't 
appear to have strengthened Dilenka very much. I mean, if anything, their position as the party of protest and East German identity has tended to fade a little bit as we move further and further away from the end of the old uh, GDR. So it wouldn't appear to have benefited the extreme left too much. As regards the extreme right, to some extent, yes, I do think the prolonged period of Grand Coalition government did provide an opening for the AFD. I mean, they, they became the official opposition after in the Bundestag after 2017. That gave them a bit of a platform. But they're in a bit of trouble now. It's the nature of these parties to be very quarrelsome inside themselves. And they don't appear to be uh, pushing quite as hard at the... Uh, the upcoming election at this time round. Uh, and I think also the roots of discontent in largely in Eastern Germany that gave rise to the AFD probably would have happened anyway, with or without a, a grand coalition government. So it would be unfair to say that this long period of consensus politics drove up radicalism on, on each side. I think that would be going too far, but it nevertheless did allow a certain kind of coziness and lack of incentive to push forward with, with domestic reform. I think that one can say. Let's go, let's go back to Europe very quickly, because you mentioned something which is probably very important from a perspective of European politics and also the future of the European Union, the question of fiscal integration. Angela Merkel, and, and not just her, of course, her party has been very critical of the idea of you know, too deep fiscal integration at a European level and the idea of a common European debt program. Of course, in the, at the height of the European debt crisis, that was termed the Eurobonds. And I think Angela Merkel also, I think, to pacify her party, and her, which was quite critical of these um, relief programs for Greece, she once said in a meeting, as long as I live, there will be no Eurobonds. And now, well, eight, ten, 10 years later, there are no euro bonds, but of course, since last spring, there are corona bonds in, in essence. So there is a sort of European debt program now, of course, framed to, to a European response to corona and its, and its aftermath. Is that a fundamental change of a German position towards Europe and maybe one that can't really be turned around anymore? It is clearly a significant shift, but it is a shift that rests on rather fragile foundations in my view. It's worth keeping in mind that the most vigorous proponents of a move to closer, if not full, fiscal integration come firstly from the Social Democrats. Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor candidate, is, is among these. But the SPD is languishing in the opinion polls and, in my view, is quite likely to finish yet again with its worst Bundestag election results since 1949. So the main party that is pushing on this front is actually rather weak. Uh, there is, of course, uh, some sympathy for the idea of closer fiscal union also on a, on a more creative, more expansive fiscal policy in general from the Greens. And that could be very interesting if they're in the government. Thirdly, one sees a debate going on among German central bankers, particularly the relatively new German member of the European Central Bank Executive Board, Isabel Schnabel, takes a, a less doctrinaire approach on these kind of subjects. And lastly, you, you did see for a while 
earlier this year, a, the, a debate beginning to develop in, inside the CDU on, on whether fiscal policy really needed to be quite so orthodox. That debate was shut down fairly quickly, it must be said. And so my conclusion would be, does the EU Recovery Fund and Germany's endorsement of it with its with the key component of borrowing on financial markets to make loans and grants to other countries. Is that is that German endorsement a lasting shift? Could it go further? I, I would say it's a very important shift, but it rests on fragile political foundations. In a European context, Germany obviously is not just shaping European politics, it is also responding to, to developments. Um, uh, in, in other countries. And one important develop, development has been the rise of, of populist parties. I mean, Matteo Salvini has been doing very well in Italy, and he was even for a while in government, he might well return. And of course, the potentially more scary development is the success of Marine Le Pen in opinion polls in France. Is that the worst case scenario for German politics, Pen presidency? And could Germany's vision of Europe survive that even? Le Pen, should she come to power, I think would represent a very uh, severe problem for Germany. Um, whether it would um, cause the collapse of uh, everything built so far, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, her views on uh, the euro, for example, are not so extreme as they were before the 2017 election. I mean, in a way, that was what killed her. She didn't have a coherent policy on what to, what France would do if it was outside the monetary union. and. Emmanuel Macron skewered her on this very effectively. I think the point about German attitudes to France is not only about Le Pen, it's not only about the risk of a national populist potential victory in France, it's it's actually, there's a deeper German scepticism about French economic performance. This was the big concern all the way through the 1990s in the build-up to construction the monetary union, and then how far to integrate further. There was a feeling that France hadn't done deep enough reforms to, to justify the kind of closer integration that some French politicians were talking about. And I I suspect that that is still the view in Germany, actually. The Macron economic reform program shuddered to a halt with the uh, two things. One, the gilets jaunes outburst at the end, end of 2018, and then the coronavirus. So he didn't get his pension reforms through, which were regarded as a very important test case uh, in Germany. So there is a certain caution about how how far to go down this road of a a genuine economic, fiscal and monetary union if France's performance is not good enough. And I think that's just as important as attitudes to Le Pen herself. You mentioned Italy. There is also very, very deep scepticism in Germany about Italian economic performance, which has been by far the worst of any large or medium-sized uh, Eurozone countries since the era began, 22 years ago. The present government under Draghi, yes, of course, makes everybody feel more comfortable in Germany, but it isn't going to last. There will be an election in Italy, um, 2023 at the latest, and the chances seem quite high that it would bring to power a kind of realigned, more abrasive national populist right represented not only by Matteo Salvini, whom you mentioned, but also by a party to the right. That's to say the so-called Fratelli d'Italia, the brothers of Italy, Giorgio Meloni. 
that kind of government in Italy would not be one that any German chancellor and foreign minister and financier would feel comfortable dealing with. These all, in my view, act as brakes on how far Germany would be willing to go down the road to a deeper economic and fiscal unity. I think the German political classes do not believe that political conditions in France and Italy and some other places are stable enough and offer a broad enough consensus to permit that kind of leap into the future. Let's look at Berlin more closely now, maybe, and the election itself. We have two main runners-off for the position of Chancellor. I mean, Laschet from the Christian Democratic uh, Union and then Annalena Baerbock from the Greens. Uh, they potentially represent quite different styles. They might also work together. Is this competition between the Greens on the one hand, the Christian Democrats on the other hand, going to change German politics in the, in the long term? Is this going to lead to a more fundamental transformation of German politics? Or is it really more of a superficial difference? Well, it would, it would clearly be uh, very innovative if you, you were to get a CDU-Green coalition government at national level by virtue of that nothing like that has happened before. I think it would also be innovative in the sense that were the Greens to be in power, no matter who their partner or partners were, they are nowadays a somewhat different party to what they were when they were in power in 1998-2005. to And that could be interesting for Germany's outlook in, in world affairs. I'm thinking in particular of the, the, the rather more forthright line on China and to, to some extent Russia that the Greens have taken. Whether this would really translate into different policies once they're in power is another matter. But their program, is there's some pretty strong language in it on, on those issues. But you're right to point to the question of a larger continuity in German politics, both since unification and extending before that. And that continuity is represented above all by the fact that there is a, a legal and constitutional order that places certain limits on what governments in power can do. It's a political culture that is soaked in legalism and respect for the constitutional order. The only parties that perhaps don't respect that are the anti-system ones, perhaps the AFD, but the, the mainstream parties all respect this. And the constitutional order places limits on issues like full European integration or German military actions. And that, that will remain the case after September. So to that extent, one shouldn't expect us any surprising departures from what has gone so far. You mentioned the green approach to foreign policy, which could be more robust, let's say, on, on, on China or Russia. And I know you wrote a piece on this in the Financial Times a few weeks ago of what a green government could mean for Germany. Could you maybe um, elaborate a bit more how a green foreign policy could look like in practice? Well, I think one of the points that the Greens have made that strikes home rather forcefully is, can Germany any longer continue to pretend that there are two avenues or two two branches to foreign policy. That's to say a political branch and an economic branch, and you do them on two separate tracks. And so you can continue to have flourishing business relations with, for example, China, to some extent, Russia, or that, that's more an energy question, perhaps, to Russia and China. It's a full-blown trade and investment relationship. And the Greens are pointing out that increasingly this two-track approach doesn't work because where you disapprove of 
behavior by Russia or China, then you get sanctions that clashes with the business interests. So that's going to be one of the hardest things for the next next government to deal with. Can you persist, if you like, in, in this view with China that you have vandal uh, door handle? You can encourage change through trade. And frankly, in China, that doesn't seem to have worked. The green line on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany, I mean, they, they oppose it, of course. But, you know, by the time the coalition negotiations are finished after the September election, I mean, they could take a long time, as, as they have done more and more in recent elections. Nord Stream 2 could well be finished by then. So that may not be an issue um, by the time the next government's in power. Also, the Greens have a slightly ambiguous attitude to what secured foreign and security policy really means if it's going to be harder, more hard-nosed, more realistic. Um, they have a somewhat um, ambiguous use to the uh, to the use of military power. Um, the When the co-leader, Robert Harbeck, was in Ukraine and talked about Ukraine should be offered what he called defensive weapons. I'm not quite sure what a defensive weapon is, but defensive weapons because of the conflict in eastern Ukraine. I mean, there was an uproar about even that suggestion. So the Greens are not quite coherent on some of these issues. But they do make the very important point, as I say, that increasingly it's not possible to have a business relationship with adversarial powers that is entirely separate from the political domain. Yes, it's, it's somewhat ironic almost that the Green Party, which is from a historical perspective more pacifistic, violently pacifistic, is now apparently the party advocating a more robust, as you put it, hard-nosed foreign policy. But then maybe it's not so surprising in, in the way that when Joschka Fischer in 1998 became foreign minister, uh, I think the Greens were much more openly pacifistic, but still this was a time when under his tenure as foreign minister, Germany got into more uh, out-of-area missions and military missions than ever before in Kosovo and also Afghanistan, of course. So I think maybe there is also an element of learning and adapting to the, to the sort of requirements of government. Uh, and the Greens have certainly shown that they are doing that when they're in government before. That is very true. I mean, it was mainly a Joschka Fischer thing. It wasn't really the Greens as a whole, of course. But he did do it, to his credit, and that advanced the process of political maturity in the, in the Greens. And I think the Americans watch this. They, they, may, they may be somewhat doubtful about whether any German government of whatever complexion, whatever parties are in it, would really step up on the question of European security. This goes beyond the question of totemic 2% of GDP contribution to NATO military budget. It's more about having a more strategic approach to foreign policy in general when you have what looks like a long-term lasting problem in China and some recurring problems with Russia at the moment. Now, we've seen, I mean, Laschet's CDU candidate talking about, yes, well, you know, we can we should have a security council. That would, that would help. And perhaps it would. Although the, the record in Britain, uh, when it set up its National Security Council here, uh, frankly, it was hard to discern much impact on foreign and security policy from the creation of that council in itself. So I'm not absolutely convinced it would be any difference in Germany. Still, the idea is useful and it probably should happen, yes. Do you think that now is a period when 
there is a more fundamental shift in German security foreign policy um, thinking then? Do you think this has really changed? I would say one can detect growing recognition in the political classes, in the business community, public opinion generally, that China is becoming a country pursuing power policies that aren't always friendly to Germany and uh, the EU and the, and the West as a whole. That, I think, has become noticeable in, in recent years. But, you know, German business is heavily, heavily invested in China. The car industry in recent years has been getting most of its profits because of its operation in China, for example. So there isn't going to be a clean, quick switch of policy on this. It's going to take time to argue through. With regard to Russia, well, there is, I wouldn't say a consensus among all the mainstream parties, but the, there are very influential voices across all the main parties, CDU, SPD, Greens, FDP, that, that simply say Germany has, has to treat Russia as a bit of an exception for partly historical reasons, but also because of it being geographically so close and because of Germany's responsibilities for the small Eastern European countries between Germany and Russia. Germany has to really be very careful not to go out on a limit towards Russia. That view is, as I say, seeded among influential people across all the, all the main parties. And the anti-system parties or radical parties, Die Linke and AFD, I mean, they're, if anything, even more sympathetic to, to Russia. So that is going to be hard to change, I would say. The success of a Green Party is a very German phenomenon. I can't, other than maybe Austria, I can't really think of a European or major European country where a Green Party is really a major political force and certainly none where it might even end up running the country. Would election victory, maybe even a Green Chancellorship in September, be a signal to other European countries or is this really just a localised German phenomenon? It would certainly be a signal, yes. It would suggest two things, I would say. One, that party which originated as a kind of unconventional anti-establishment party in the, in the case of the German Greens can actually evolve over time and re reach uh, the peak of power. It, that would be a sign to, to other, other movements uh, in other countries that political change does indeed happen. It would be a, a signal... Also, I think that in order to get to this position of success, you have to take account of the realities of political and economic circumstances around you and, and adjust to them and, and, and not be too pure from, a, from an ideological point of view. Whether it would replicate itself in terms of parties actually calling themselves green, I'm, I'm not so sure. One has to remember that parties born out of protest or unconventional positions elsewhere around Europe, which we, as we've seen in the last 10, 10 years or so, uh, they haven't, they haven't um, picked up particularly on the issue of environmentalism because that's gone mainstream. Everybody's environmentalist now. So parties, for example, in, in southern and central eastern Europe that have challenged the establishment have often homed in on the question of corruption. That's what this supposedly distinguishes them. They might feel, for example, that the success of the Greens in Germany could inspire inspire them. Other parties, you know, have picked up on less savoury causes and they wouldn't borrow relief from the Greens in particular. One thinks of a party that emerged in Spain during the upheavals there, Ciudadanos Citizens, which represented, the kind, again, partly anti-corruption, but also 
kind of pro-business. In principle, a party like that could have looked at the Greens and said, you know what, there is a path for someone, some of the party fresh and new like us. But, you know, they, they ran into a brick wall in the last year or two because they got derailed by the Catalan separatism issue. So I'm not sure that a green victory would spawn movements similar in, in, in nature to the Greens elsewhere. One candidate we haven't talked much about is Armin Laschet, although if you look at the polls, he's probably still or just about back in the lead. How would you characterize his bid for chancellorship? Well, for me, one of the most striking things is, you know, it's been quite a while since Angela Merkel began the process of bowing out from the political scene. And both her first anointed successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, and now Laschet, to my eye, don't really seem to have received her full-throated support. She sounded actually rather lukewarm about them. And uh, indeed, Laschet, she even voiced some criticism of how he'd been handling things in North Rhine-Westphalia. So that doesn't help, for sure. You say, you know, he, he's kind of around or at the top of the polls, but it's not so much Laschet himself, it's the CDU. There's a difference, I think. If he were to become Chancellor, he'd be on a bit of a steep learning curve to um, acquire the authority that Merkel did fairly quickly. On the other hand, because of Germany's importance in Europe and around the world, the very fact of occupation of the office of Chancellor confers power and a certain dignity and it generates respect by virtue of the office itself. But he's not got a total authority over his own party even now, and he doesn't seem to have convinced all the German public by a long way. That's probably a fair assessment. Although I think that in a way that's actually also true of Angela Merkel in 2005, who probably not so much won the 2005 election as much as Gerhard Schröder just about lost it and it ended up being very tight. Maybe as a final question, from a British perspective, looking at all of this from London, what's at stake in the September election if there's anything at stake? Well, I wonder if British politicians have ever learned from their dealings with Germany. There seems to be a a constant ability to misread Germany, particularly really what I'm talking about here is European Union policy and Germany's influence on European Union policy. The idea that Germany would do Britain a favour on certain things in order to help out uh, London in the EU. I mean, the the British consistently got that wrong. The the politicians, I should say, not the uh, people who, who understood Germany better in the diplomatic service or the academic world to some extent, the business world as well. It was the politicians' fault. With, with that now behind everyone, perhaps there will be a, an ability to set relations on a on a more stable path into the future. I think one of the you know rather worrying trends has been the decline in um, British German trade relations in the last couple of years. I mean, Germany really was right up there among the top business partners of Britain. That's that's been disrupted a bit in the last couple of years. I think there should be a focus in London on setting that straight. I think as regards kind of European security, there's quite a lot of common positions, actually, despite all ructions over Brexit. I would imagine that would continue. And the only thing then that we would need is the Goethe Institute to keep um, providing opportunities for British people to learn German. Because, I mean, the knowledge of German, I don't know what they're teaching in schools and universities these days, but it's nothing like as much as in my time. Okay, fantastic. Well, Tony, thank you very much for this 
encompassing and fascinating tour d'horizon through uh, European affairs and German politics. That was Tony Barber, European Affairs columnist at the Financial Times. Thank you. And our next recording is going to be with Nikolai von Andarsa from the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, discussing the whole question of Europe more from a German perspective. Thanks for listening to this podcast on Germany and the world. You can find the Center for Geopolitics on Twitter at Cam Geopolitics. All of our events and podcasts are advertised on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.